Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, and this is the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. On the show, we talk about managing PCOS using proven strategies, ditching diets for good, and balancing hormones naturally. Let's get to it. struggles with sleep issues, you're definitely not alone. This is super common with PCOS. So whether you tend to toss and turn or you have poor quality sleep, you're constantly feeling tired as a result, or maybe you even had a sleep study and was advised to wear a CPAP machine, today's guest expert is here to help. Her name is Audrey Wells, Dr. Audrey Wells, and she's a double board certified physician. She's a sleep medicine and obesity medicine doctor, specializing in sleep disorders and specifically helping people with sleep apnea to use a CPAP machine effectively. Dr. Wells is also a certified life coach who helps people manage their mindset and change their habits, including sleep, so that they can lead healthier lives. You can find out all the information about Dr. Wells in the show notes below. I put together some links for you so you can check out her website and other resources that she has. And now let's bring her on to talk about improving sleep hygiene and getting the healthy, good quality sleep that you need to optimize your health, your hormones, and your PCOS. Let's dive in. Hey, Dr. Wells, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Yeah, you too. So let's get started. We're talking about sleep today, of course, and I'd love to have you introduce yourself briefly and share a little bit about what you do and who you work with, all of that good stuff. Awesome. So my name is Dr. Audrey Wells. I'm a sleep medicine physician. And what I do is help people who have sleep apnea get fully treated without sacrificing their comfort. And most often that looks like CPAP issues. So I help folks get through that or move on to a treatment that would work better for them. Okay. And is sleep apnea, would you say that's on the rise? Are we seeing more people being diagnosed with sleep apnea recently? You know, it's an interesting question because I don't think it's necessarily on the rise, but I think it's more, there's more awareness about it. And so the testing measures are increased. There's certainly outreach to try to get folks who are symptomatic, need to be tested, and of course, treated if the diagnosis applies. Mm -hmm. I know that we think of sleep apnea as something that's more prevalent in men. Is that a myth or what is the kind of statistics with women or are there other sleep issues other than sleep apnea that women tend to struggle with more? Mm. You know, this is such a, an insightful question because I think typically when people think of sleep apnea, they think of a heavyset guy with a big neck, mid fifties or sixties and kind of snoring to peel the paint off the walls. (laughs) And, you know, in a way that type of profile is certainly at risk and should get checked. It's sort of a slam dunk, but I want to, to point out that women are at risk People who have normal weight are not immune to having sleep apnea. And one thing that's a little bit tricky is that women tend to present with a different set of symptoms compared to men. And I'll tell you what I mean. It's sort of like heart attack, right? So men get the crushing chest pain and and they go down. Um, Women tend to have more subtle symptoms with heart attack and the same 
is true for sleep apnea. So women complain more of light sleep or fragmented sleep. They complain more of daytime tiredness versus sleepiness, and they complain less of snoring. And the absence of snoring does not necessarily mean the absence of sleep apnea. So in anybody who's symptomatic, I think it's pretty reasonable to get screened uh, for the disorder since it is so, so common. Are there criteria as to how long it should be going on? How does someone know they just had a crappy, <laughs> crappy sleep for one or two nights or they actually have a chronic problem? I think the duration of symptoms does factor in a bit here. But one thing that happens is it comes, sleep apnea sort of comes on slowly and tends to get worse over time. So it's, a, it's difficult to sort of pinpoint the start of your sleep apnea. And because as humans, we're always acclimating to our condition over time, you may just notice you don't have the endurance to get through your day or your brain seems a little bit foggy and you start attributing it to your age or something like that. But, you know, if you feel like your sleep is disrupted, if you feel like you should feel more rested compared to your peers or your spouse, then I think it's worthwhile to just have a low threshold for starting that ball rolling to investigate what's going on. Okay. I guess we should take a step back and talk a little bit about what happens in the body when someone has sleep apnea. What is the condition itself? This is a condition that happens during sleep, which is where the sleep and sleep apnea comes from. And for that reason, a lot of people sort of discount it as not that serious because we negotiate with our sleep, right? The apnea in sleep apnea means without breath. And this is what makes the condition serious. So you are literally blocking your breathing during sleep. And with obstructive sleep apnea, it's because the tissues in the back of your throat actually collapse to the point where you can't get adequate air flow into your lungs to oxygenate your blood. Now, the brain needs a constant supply of oxygen. It's very sensitive to those drops when you have an obstruction during sleep. So your brain has to wake up a little bit to gasp and take a big breath of air to reestablish that oxygen supply. That may be dramatic and it may be very subtle. So, you know, I think it's worth paying attention to any disruption in sleep because sleep is absolutely critical for health. And where sleep apnea is concerned, these blocks in the airway can happen hundreds of times at night. I'll give you a number just to kind of orient you. When we talk about sleep apnea severity, moderate sleep apnea is between 15 and 29 airway obstructions per hour oh, of wow. sleep. Okay. Now let's take sort of light, moderate sleep apnea at 15 airway obstructions per hour of sleep. For someone who sleeps seven hours at night, that means they're having 100, 100 airway obstructions during the course of that night. And that's the low range of moderate sleep apnea. Wow, that's a huge number. It is. Think and of is your that... smoke alarm going off, you know, chirping 100 times at night and disrupting your sleep. Right. And is that evaluated through a sleep study? It is. There's a couple of different sleep study options out there. 
Uh, you can have an in-lab sleep study, which in my opinion is better for women because it's more sensitive to the diagnosis of sleep apnea. Or you can have a home sleep apnea test, which only looks for sleep apnea and tends to be a little bit less sensitive to people who have mild cases and may actually underestimate the severity of it. Okay. And the sleep study is what determines if someone or the severity would determine if someone is a candidate for a CPAP or a BiPAP, right? Exactly right. Yes. And insurance requires that diagnosis before they'll help with the payments for a CPAP or a BiPAP machine. I'd love for you, because I know we have some people who do use a CPAP machine and many women listening right now have sleep issues that are not necessarily related to sleep apnea, but so maybe we can talk about that. But for those people who are listening and do use a CPAP or were recommended and maybe they're concerned or anxious about starting something like that, can you talk a little bit about what the treatment looks like and some of your best tips to making it successful? Yes. And I want to point out that oftentimes I think People who consider a sleep evaluation see a CPAP at the end of that road, and that's not necessarily true. So I think anyone who has sleep symptoms should get checked out just so that they make sure they're enjoying all the benefits of healthy sleep, because there's lots of behavioral things that can be done to improve sleep quality. But if you do get a diagnosis of sleep apnea, more than likely, you're going to be recommended CPAP therapy. And that's because CPAP is the gold standard treatment for obstructive sleep apnea. The reason for that is it's by far the most effective. So it works in more than 95% of people with obstructive sleep apnea. But there's a major caveat here, which is it only works when you use it. And so people have to be motivated to use their CPAP and really use it throughout the night to get the most benefit. I work with folks who maybe have taken a few steps down that road or have really been trying for a long time. And I help them sort of identify what barriers exist. Sometimes it's anxiety with the mask. Sometimes it's difficulty tolerating the pressure. Sometimes it's just a problem getting into the habit. And we know that all health habits require a lot of effort. So, you know, for anybody who wants to stick with CPAP, I can help you get over that hump so that it's really routine. It's not causing a lot of mental agitation at night. Mm -hmm. And then there's some people who simply want to know what else is out there. That's a very common question. And the truth is there's lots of other treatments out there. None of them are effective as effective as CPAP for groups of people, but that's not really what a person is asking about, is it? They want to know what might be effective for me. And because I wanted to give people an idea of what was on the landscape for CPAP alternatives, I actually created an online course that sort of details what's available and also what my clinical experience has been with each treatment. And this is completely agnostic, meaning I am not sponsored by any company. I don't take any sort of advertisement or anything like that. I simply wanted to get the information out there for folks who want to switch. Okay. So that's great. I'll link to that in the show notes so people can check it out. And so the, the CPAP machine provides the oxygen, like a continuous supply of oxygen. Is that right? 
You're almost right. So <laughs> there's actually no extra oxygen in CPAP. It is literally the air that you breathe normally. And it's typically only folks who have heart problems or lung problems that need the extra oxygen bled into their CPAP. What the CPAP does is it pressurizes the air so that air pressure can hold the throat open, kind of like a stent. And therefore, you're not collapsing your throat. You're breathing in and out normally, and your brain can stay asleep because it's getting a stable supply of oxygen. Okay. And are the machines still loud and has the design gotten any better? The design is so much better. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, speaking of loud machines, the oxygen concentrator is still super loud and will disrupt your sleep. Plus it's big. It's like the size of a carry-on suitcase, but CPAP machines are extraordinarily quiet. They kind of make sound like a white noise in the room, but it's very low level on the order of a fan that you might have on. They get noisy if there's air leak. You can have what I call face farts, (laughs) which is where your mask comes up a little bit. And then it sounds like a balloon kind of going out (laughs) of air. But they're super quiet. The design has gotten smaller over time. And, you know, I think I want to squash any notions that the CPAP machine is as loud as it used to be because it simply isn't. Okay, well, that's great to hear. I know people who've used it and said it was absolutely life changing. Mm-hmm. So it's the rewards are certainly seems to over weigh out the risk or the benefits. I guess there's no risk, but maybe the anxiety or the adjustment to it. And there's adjustment periods to everything, you know. So absolutely. I think that that's something that everyone needs to consider. What about PCOS in terms of diagnosing sleep apnea or other sleep disorders? Is that something that factors in? Do you see that more women with PCOS are at risk for sleep issues? It's true. And it's not just sleep apnea that carries more risk for women who have PCOS. So because PCOS has metabolic components, hormonal components, and psychological components, it tends to interface negatively with sleep, meaning You might have fragmented sleep. You might have insomnia or trouble getting to sleep at night, long nighttime awakenings. And some estimates are that the risk for sleep apnea is 30 times more compared to a woman without PCOS. And that probably has to do with a combination of factors. It's not just a person's weight, although that may be a factor. It's also their hormonal balance because the testosterone is a bit increased relative to a woman without PCOS. So I know that testosterone can cause anxiety. It's associated with higher levels of anxiety. I didn't know that sleep is also something that's associated with higher androgen levels. It's not necessarily the case that sleep is associated with higher androgen levels, but the two interact negatively with each other. So if you are sleep deprived for any reason, that's going to increase your anxiety. It'll increase your low mood or even get into depression. Uh, There's lots of negative psychological effects. Let's talk about that. So tell me a little bit about physiologically and mentally, what happens in the body when someone has poor quality sleep or not enough sleep? Because what you said is correct. I hear from women all the time that they have an issue sleeping well, and it could be different. It could be, I can't fall asleep 
early. I can only fall asleep at 2 a.m. and then I, I can barely get up for work or mm-hmm. I, I fall asleep, but then I wake up multiple times. I can't go back to sleep or mm-hmm. just overall, I slept seven or nine to nine hours, but I'm still exhausted. I don't feel like I, I'm rested. Mm-hmm. So are all of these grouped into just one bucket or does it matter what the sleep pattern is? I wish that I can take all the problems you just named and wave a wand and it would be over. But the truth is, it's a complex situation. I want to kind of give you a a few tips, though, and something I really like to say to women who, you know, I, I advocate for women and I advocate for women's sleep is that women are bound by a biological rhythm, right? Women menstruate, women have mood changes, women have all these things that relate to timing and timing is controlled with a central brain clock. I think it's even more important for women compared to men that they adhere to a regular sleep cycle as much as possible. And they can support that with regular meals, regular exposure to light, regular exercise and regular social interactions such that there's contrast between your day and your night. And that's kind of an easy way to think about ways in which one might improve their sleep hygiene. So bright light in the morning, dim light in the evening, lots of socialization during the day, shut it off at night, turn inward for introspection. These things help signal to your brain when it's time to be awake and alert and energetic, hopefully, and when it's time to sleep deeply. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I talk a lot about circadian rhythms, also with eating. And, you know, we used to think that it doesn't matter when someone ate and what they ate, but now we know it makes a big difference. And actually your body wants to shut down, you know, it's, active system, the digestion and all of those things need to calm down at night. It's not meant to process a huge meal at 9 p.m. And that would, of course, disrupt sleep, but also other metabolic factors. You're so right. And it's it's really kind of a stressor on the body to have this digestion program running because there's food in your system and trying to sleep and sleep deeply and run through the regular sleep cycles. So I just want to emphasize that really paying attention to the timing of what you're doing and how you're feeling and whether you're asleep or awake is low hanging fruit. Yeah. What about weekends? Because I know everyone's like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Can I sleep late? Can I go to bed late? How do you deal with that? I deal with it first by saying you can do anything you want to do. And it's up to you how you run your life. But I can give you some information about how that might affect you. Have you ever heard of social jet lag? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's a real thing. And um, it means that when the weekend comes around, you kind of loosen up on your schedule. So Friday night, maybe you stay up later, sleep in on Saturday, same for Saturday night and Sunday. And then by the time Monday rolls around, your brain's like, whoa, 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 what? We're not doing this anymore? And Monday turns out to be a really tough day because your sleep was shorter and you're trying to like do your tasks and do your job on less energy than you would have had. You know, I think that people can make choices and run experiments on their schedules and kind of factor in what 
works for them? Is it worth it? How much does this fit into my life or my family's life? It's all kind of a decision. But if I were to maybe make a bold suggestion, which is take two or three weeks and keep your schedule regular between weekends and weekdays and see how you feel. And if you're somebody that tends to be especially sensitive to that regulation, you are going to feel better and that may motivate you to continue, but it's going to take a couple, three weeks for you to run that experiment and kind of be a scientist for yourself. And when you say regular, you mean going to bed and waking up at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. So does it matter if someone gets the proper hours? So seven to nine hours, I believe, is what's recommended. But that starts later. Say they sleep from, you know, 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. And someone's mm -hmm. schedule does allow that on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Does it matter when the seven to nine hours fall? So not necessarily, but I'll point out that there's a, there's some of your biology that plays a role here. Chronotype describes when you are genetically predispositioned to have your best sleep. Okay. So I happen to be a lark or an early bird, which is not very common and neither is night owl, but the third bird is the most common type of chronotype, which would not tolerate the schedule you described very well. So third birds in the middle, which is about 65% of the population should probably go to bed between 10 and 11 and wake up between six and seven in the morning. My schedule is such that I go to bed at 8.30 and I wake up at four. And this works very well for me. And I maintain that schedule and enforce it with my activity and my light, et cetera. What you described going to bed at 1 a.m. and getting up at 9 a.m. would work well for a night owl. And this is somebody who tends to have that later shift in their sleep schedule that is in alignment with their chronotype. But if the schedule is imposed because of work responsibilities, for example, then they may struggle a little bit to maintain that. Okay. And just for the record, I'm aligned with you. I would not follow that schedule either. Yeah. <laughs> that would be really difficult for yeah, but, like us. But I know a lot of people listening do have that kind of a schedule. And so I just mm -hmm. was curious about that. And also some people listening, maybe night shift workers. Yes. That's really difficult. Oh, it's so difficult. And there have been numerous studies showing that night shift workers carry other health risks seemingly as a result of the shifted sleep schedule. And I'm talking about cardiovascular disease, infertility, depression, and on and on. It's unfortunate, but it's kind of a good way to emphasize how the timing of our sleep directly affects our health. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about, cause we just touched on weekends, alcohol and how alcohol impacts sleep. Yeah. And I think it's different than what people may think that alcohol helps them fall asleep or makes them tired, but the quality is not as good, right? The quality is actually significantly worse. And the perception that it helps you fall asleep is accurate in a way because alcohol is a sedative. So the time it takes you to get to sleep may be shorter not because you've initiated a normal sleep cycle, but because you're a little anesthetized, which mm -hmm. is not kind of a normal sleep. But the perception is, oh, I fell asleep faster. And in fact, some people use alcohol for that purpose. Unfortunately, 
that's all it can do for you. All the rest of the effects are negative. And for some people, this boils down to even one alcoholic serving or uh, sometimes two. But what it does is it makes your sleep choppy. It reduces your REM sleep or dream sleep in the second half of the night. And it makes your wake up time more extended. So it's harder to kind of get your brain online when you want to be awake and alert in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. That's really difficult. So we just talked a little bit about night shift workers and how we see in studies, like I know the nurses health study showed that women, you know, and it studied nurses who work night shifts. And we have a lot of those in, in who are listening right now in my audience. What are some of the biggest health risks that are associated with long-term sleep deprivation or poor sleep quality? One thing I want to be sure and talk about is the metabolic risk. So when you have a an atypical sleep schedule or you have a sleep schedule that's highly variable, so this is shift work with kind of flipping back to a typical schedule on days off, then you're going to have trouble regulating your metabolic processes. And this goes right down to your appetite, cravings, food selection, and even a feeling of satiety. It really sort of messes with your hormones to make it more likely that you'll struggle with your weight management and even puts you at risk for things like diabetes or prediabetes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that there's kind of a double whammy that happens hormonally with appetite suppression and mm-hmm. fullness. And it's reversed. You feel more hungry and less full, even though you may eat the same amount that you did every other day that you did sleep well. I know that it happens for me, like the days that I don't sleep well, I am so much hungrier and it seems like it's insatiable. Like I really can't feel full and that's all hormonal, right? Right. So your ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone is up. Your ghrelin is like, I want to (laughs) eat. And worse yet, the foods that you crave are high carbohydrate, salty or sugary snack foods. And I remember when I was going through my medical training, this was like really something that I had to deal with. After an overnight on call, I'm like, give me the biscuits and gravy because I'm more of a savory person. But that hunger or that appetite for carbs is from the hormonal imbalance caused by sleep loss or sleep deprivation. Yeah. Your body wants that available energy. It wants it quick. Right. It's not getting it from sleep. So let's get it from some food. Yeah. Okay. I'd love to talk some more about tips that you have for women who are struggling, falling asleep earlier or have fragmented sleep. What Mm -hmm. can they do within the four walls of their home as they prepare for sleep or maybe even before during the day to optimize that? I think that how you spend your days affects how you spend your nights. And I say that not to kind of be dramatic about it, but to to help people understand that they probably have a lot more control than they think they do. So when you wake up in the morning, do try to, to get out and get bright light from the sun is best, even on a cloudy day. But if you're up at four o'clock in the morning, like me, you may need an artificial light source to get that light in the morning. And an artificial light source that's going to be effective is maybe 5,000 lux to 10,000 lux near your face. You don't have to look directly at it, 
but near your face for about 20, 30 minutes in the morning, that gives your brain a signal that, oh, it's time to be awake now. And then there's a timer that gets reinforced, a 16-hour timer such that at nighttime, if you are dimming the lights, then it's more likely you'll be able to get to sleep like you want to. I also want to bring up the issue of temperature, which I think is a really kind of sweet way to encourage sleep at night. There's naturally a dip in your core body temperature that signals sleepiness. And you can accelerate this by taking a hot shower or a hot bath. It's a little bit counterintuitive, isn't it? Right. Let me explain what happens. Let's say I get into the bath and it's quite warm and I stay there for 10, 20 minutes reading my magazine. That's one of the things that I do to have me time at night. And then I get out of the bath. Well, what's happening then is that all the capillaries in my hands and feet and extremities are dilated. So the blood goes out to those extremities and it's a heat sink. The heat sort of evaporates from my skin. That causes a core drop in body temperature and that signals my brain it's time to sleep. You can accelerate this further by getting a cold pack and putting it on your upper face or eyes, which is a calming mechanism. It's known as the diver's reflex, and that helps to slow your heart rate, slow your breathing. So as you're lying in bed, you've got all these wonderful conditions that are going to help you go to sleep. Wow, that's great. I'm going to try that. That sounds amazing. Do It works like a charm. Okay, good. What about things like journaling or or nighttime routines? Is that something that you recommend people focus on and try to establish something? I think it's a good idea for everybody to try, especially if you're the kind of person that lies in bed with your thoughts ping-ponging around. You know, it's kind of the monkey mind, right? Your brain kind of, it's not terribly smart at the end of the day, if I'm honest. Your brain is worn out. It's going to ruminate on different things. You're not going to come up with any fantastic ideas. You're just going to chew on something that's bothering you. If that's happening, it really helps to evacuate your brain before lying down. And doing that on paper has really great results because there's something soothing about hearing yourself, right? Mm -hmm. You're kind of getting all of those thoughts out onto paper. So they're not bouncing around in your head. And that makes them available to examine and say, you know, that's not really reasonable. What a funny thought I just had. And it gives you a little bit of peace that you can go to sleep with. Same is true in the middle of the night. Kind of if you're waking up, your mind is really active. Just jot down whatever is in your brain. Doesn't have to be complete sentences. Doesn't have to be legible. Doesn't have to be anything, but just this purge. And then that can help settle your mind to get back to sleep. Do you recommend that someone goes out of the bed into a quiet space and then return to the bed? Or because if someone's tossing and turning, what are some of the things that work well to get back to sleep as fast as possible? I used to be a purist about this. I'll be honest. I, anybody who told me that, I would say, you got to get up. You got to get out of the bed and go into another room. When I went through my own sleep problems, I realized that this recommendation needs a little bit of wiggle room because it's not necessarily 
it's not attractive, right, to get out of bed into the cold. And I think the way around that is to see if you can lie in bed and not feel agitated. That's what you want to avoid. If you are feeling agitated, then yes, you should get out of bed so that you're not making that cognitive pairing between the bed and feeling agitated. And your brain is more susceptible to that in the early morning hours. So I recommend sort of a staged approach. When you're awake and you realize, okay, I'm really feeling wired. I don't think I'm going to be able to get back to sleep. I'd suggest a few steps. The first is stretch, stretch in bed, tense up and relax your muscles, stretch your neck, stretch your legs, stretch your arms, do that in bed just to get a little bit of a physical reset. Mm -hmm. Find a comfortable position. Sometimes this means pillow propping. I like to ask people to lie on their back and some people are like, I can't lie on my back. Try it with the knees up on a couple of pillows so that the knees are higher and make sure your neck is well supported. This is a very neutral position and can be very comforting. Do some deep breathing, do box breathing, do four, seven, eight breathing, or you can do breath stacking, which is really good at helping your parasympathetic nervous system. So I'll describe what this is a little bit. If you've ever seen a kid like really upset and crying loud When they calm down, they go through that pitching stage, right? Okay, that's their body doing a physiologic mechanism to calm them down. And you can do this with a little hack. So stacked breathing means you take a big deep breath, pause, and then stack another breath on top of that and make your exhale much longer. So I'll demonstrate. Hmm. Okay. And all the way out. Now, two things. When you do that hitch, you're really using your diaphragm. You should make your belly go out. And that's a calming, sort of safe promoting sensation for your mind. That tells your mind, I'm safe now. It's okay to wind down. Then you're doing the exhale very long, trying to make it as long as you can before you start another breath stack. That's something else that helps you to relax helps you to reassure your mind, everything is okay to go back to sleep. I love that. I'm going to definitely try that. And I'm going to try it with my son who has some issues falling asleep. That sounds like a great way to calm the nervous system and just kind of get into that zone. So someone can do that anytime before going to sleep in the middle of the night, whenever. Before a stressful meeting, after a fight with your husband. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. Okay, great. How do you feel about melatonin? Melatonin is is so interesting. I I get this question a lot. And, you know, I'll be frank with you. Melatonin doesn't have any demonstrable effect on sleep. It can be used to address the timing of sleep. And I have recommended it for people who do a lot of travel across time zones. But it's way more effective to engage your own body's production of melatonin in order to promote sleep. The way to shut down melatonin is to have bright light exposure at night or Mm, to use your phone phone. at night, especially between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. If you look at that bright screen, even if it's just for a second, your melatonin can reduce and you'll have trouble sleeping. I want to tell you that recently... 
And even a few years ago, there were studies done on over-the-counter melatonin looking at how much active ingredient was there compared to what's on the bottle's label and what else, if anything, is in that. In the recent study, they again demonstrated that melatonin bottles can have up to 400% more in the pills compared to what was labeled on the bottle, or they can have nothing. Point number two is that some of the samples of over-the-counter melatonin that were recently tested also contained CBD. It's out there. Supplements are poorly regulated. So I don't recommend that people take them. If you feel like you have to look for the USP United States Pharmacopeia label on the side and stay with a low dose, you're not going to get any benefit from melatonin, five milligrams, 10 milligrams, forget it. You want to stay between 0.5 and at most three, but preferably 0.5 or one milligram. Okay, that's good to know. What about CBD? Because it's Oof. all the rage now. Yeah. Is there research behind CBD for sleep? There is. And, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where typically the papers end with, you know, more re- research needs to be done with bigger populations and better controls and better power. So there is research out there. And I think as states legalize recreational use of CBD and THC, you know, potentially that opens up more opportunity for research. With CBD, and you really, for sleep, you want to emphasize the CBD component, not THC. It's not horrible, to be honest, but a person needs to kind of do just the minimum that gives them the sleep effect they want. I think it's pretty easy to overdo it with CBD, and that can lead to some unwanted effects, problems with memory, a hangover sensation, and things of that nature. Okay. So melatonin and CBD don't sound too promising or I've not seen one person who has been helped by melatonin. So it Mm -hmm. totally makes sense. Are there other natural remedies or other things that you usually recommend as far as supplements for improving sleep? In pill form? Yeah. Any form, tea, pill, herbs. So your light exposure is going to be the number one natural signal for sleep and wake. Temperature, I mentioned. We talked a little bit about food. Keeping your meal three hours before you want to go to bed is the best way to go. So all of these are natural remedies. Yes. When it comes to supplementation, there's not been any scientific data showing a meaningful effect for groups of people. I don't think that it's necessarily the case that it doesn't work for anyone on the planet. So if somebody's taking something and they feel like it works for them, I'm not going to argue. But if you want to try different things, I would recommend single ingredient preparations from somewhere that's reputable. And again, that USP label is going to help you out there. More expensive supplements don't buy you anything extra. I mean, it's I think there's a lot of psychological adherence to the idea that the help is in pill-shaped form. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, it's like the routine. The routine of taking the pill signals your brain it's time to go to sleep now, or the routine of having the chamomile tea signals your brain it's time to go to sleep now. So it's like this psychological unwinding that I do support, 
but you just want to watch out with supplements because you never know what's in them. Yeah, absolutely. I know you're also a certified life coach. I'd love for you to chat a little bit about how you apply some of the coaching that you do with mindset and habit formation to sleep so that people can get an idea of what role does mindset maybe play in this. Absolutely. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about this because I feel strongly that sleep is an emotional experience. Your brain is pretty much at its expiration point after being awake for 16 hours. So really lying there in bed with your thoughts and feelings sort of marinating in them can either be working for you or against you. So I like to help people come in on from a point of view of feelings. What are you feeling? You're not going to get to sleep if you're feeling agitated, if you have regret, if you're angry, if you are, you know, just having some general unsatisfaction because that doesn't feel peaceful, right? So it's more worthwhile to focus on something that does help you get to sleep. And I'm talking about a feeling of gratitude. What are you grateful for? Or what has someone else expressed gratefulness to you for? Develop that scene in your mind. Mm -hmm. A feeling of abundance is another one. There is enough time. There is enough money. There is enough of me to go around. That feeling tends to be a lot more settling than scarcity, which is its opposite. You know, I need to get everything done and there's no time. That's not going to be very sleep promoting. So this is just sort of a a way of reframing the idea of getting to sleep that tends to be more effective than any pill or potion can be. And it's also sort of a, a meta skill, right? We talk about stress reduction, but are we effective in stress reduction? I'm not sure. It's definitely an active process and it takes awareness and constant attention. So you kind of utilize the skills of getting to sleep through an emotional window to also look at your stress and see if there's some way to improve it that way too. Okay, great. And that takes time. You know, it does take time. Yeah, it's a process. So I think being patient with yourself, if you are still struggling with sleep a week into doing some of these things or practicing a routine that's new, that's just been a week, right? Give it some more time. Don't give up, tweak it, make it your own. I think sometimes we try to really adopt other people's regimens and that's not necessarily effective, obviously, but what, you know, People may see stuff online or may find a new gadget or whatever, or a new journal or whatever it may be. If it's not going to work for you, just don't bother. I have a little antidote for you. So as part of my work with people who have sleep apnea, I try all the CPAP masks. I have a CPAP machine in my bedroom. I have one here in my office and I have a sample of each and every CPAP mask that's (laughs) distributed right now. And over the years, you'd think that trying a new mask would come pretty naturally to me. Like, oh, okay, here's another one. I'll put it on and sleep through the night. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Still, when I put on a new mask, it takes me at least a few nights to acclimate to it and sleep through the night. But more often it's one to two weeks. Okay. Anything related to sleep is going to take you, I would say between two and four weeks to really see if that's something that works for you or not. 
So if your perspective can be broadened a little bit, that may help you to stick with a change longer and see if you get the return on your investment that you're looking for. Okay, that's great. That's perfect. So I want to wrap up. You gave us so many good suggestions. I really love this conversation. I have four rapid fire questions for you that I ask all my guests. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. So number one is if you could go to dinner with any famous figure, alive or not, who would it be? Matt Walker. Okay. Nice. If you weren't a sleep expert, a doctor certified in sleep medicine, what would you be? Oh, interesting. I think I would be, I would actually develop my woodworking skills. That's a little hobby of mine that doesn't get enough attention. Love that. What did you most recently make? I made a set of furniture for my children, like a little craft table with the chairs. And it's very nearly indestructible because I put so much glue in the joints. That's awesome. Love that. What is your current favorite breakfast? Coffee with heavy cream. I don't otherwise eat breakfast. Do you eat intermittent fasting? Do you do? I definitely do and advocate that for people. Yeah. Okay. And last one is what is one healthy habit that you think is underrated? It's not talked about enough. Sleeping on a regular schedule. It's so unsexy, but it works, especially for women because women are tied to time. Okay, great. So everyone, regular sleep schedule is your next goal to work on. It can be done. It's free and you're going to feel so much better. I want to thank you for being here, Dr. Wells. This was incredible. Where can our listeners find out more about you and work with you and find you on the socials and all of that? Best place to go is to supersleepmd.com. That's where I have my platform for folks who are dealing with sleep apnea. I'm also on Instagram, supersleepmd, and I have a private Facebook group for people who are dealing with sleep apnea and sleep apnea treatments. If you search Facebook for sleep apnea and my name, it should come up easily. Okay, great. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. Can I just leave the listeners? I pulled a couple of apps that I I think may be helpful. Yes. Um, One is called SnoreLab. SnoreLab is an app that you can have on your phone that will survey your night for snoring. And I think it's paid now, but there's a seven-day free trial in case someone is wondering, do I snore at night or, you know, is my bed partner's report sufficient to determine the answer to that question? The other thing I would like to recommend is an app called Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I, which can give you some really nice ways to listen to music and sort of a guided meditation to promote relaxation and get to sleep or perhaps more importantly, get back to sleep. So that's a really nice way to at least get some non-sleep deep rest if you're not falling back to sleep. Thank you for sharing that. That's so valuable. You are amazing. I am so happy we got to do this. I'm sure everyone listening has gotten tons of valuable information from this conversation. So thank you again. And I hope to have you back soon. It would be my pleasure. Thanks so much.